welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and these are my co-host, Anthony. Good evening. And or Rob. Morning, or whenever you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> and Rob. Hello. Hello. How are you guys doing? Doing good. It's 2022. Um, yeah. We made it, and I have hopes that this year will be a good one. So I'm feeling positive. Excellent. I'm hoping it's not 2020 and then two, TWO. Um, but I, but I too am being optimistic. Um, the year a, is twenty twenty. Also, yeah, there's a lot of really great music out already, and it's only yeah. the second day of January when we're doing this, so it's our third. Uh, so that's kind of frightening. But I'm uh, I'm I'm really hopeful that things are kind of starting to swing back. Today we are talking about the icon that is david bowie on the occasion of his 75th birthday to open the conversation super easy question for everyone how did you first encounter and kind of become a fan of david bowie alan why don't you start okay well being an american of a particular age my first introduction to bowie was hearing fame on top 40 radio um, fame was his first, you know, big hit in America. It was his first number one. And I, um, I don't remember how old I was. I was a kid and I was right at that age where I was starting to listen to top 40 radio and starting to discover music other than what I heard in my parents' car on the way to church, which was, you know, gospel and country and that kind of stuff. Um, and I remember I re, I can I have very very specific memories of hearing fame on the radio. I remember the following year too in seven, that was 75 in 76 Golden Years was his next big hit and I remember waiting for that song to come on the radio so that I you know, cuz I didn't have like a tape recorder or anything so I didn't have a way of preserving it for myself yet um so I would have to wait for the song to come onto the on the radio to see if I could learn the whistling part at the end. And so every time it would play, I would, I would do the whistle part and I'd be like, oh, I didn't quite get it right. So I would try to learn it. And then the next time it played, I would whistle along again and see if I could get it that time. Such a goofy thing to remember, but. <laughs> Rob, how about you? So for me, it's not exactly a linear thing. Um, the first time that I remember hearing David Bowie, um, as David Bowie, uh, it was 1983. I was in high school and, uh, being the only like weird new wave kid in a, um, Catholic school was not exactly the best surroundings for, for, uh, you know, but so we had a juice bar we always to go to that, uh, we're really actually fortunate that this happened in St. Louis, but there was a bar called the animal house. And it was basically an old theater that they put a wood floor down and they played MTV videos and 12 inch singles and let high school boys and girls run amok and then they had bands play and, you know, but we were getting a lot of the stuff um, as it dropped on MTV or earlier. Cause back in the day, <sighs> Alan makes me feel a little better. Cause he talked about the seventies, but back in the day they would release videos on like compilation, like almost like cassette mixes, but they were videos. So you'd get a video with like 50 or 60 different videos on it and they play them. And I remember they put on um, let's dance. And I'm like, okay, this is completely different than a lot of the other stuff, even though we, there was a lot of the, that contemporary sound still um, was filtrated with, with Bowie in it. 
I just remember that being like, wow, that's David Bowie. And I got hooked with that record and jumped in. That's the first one I remember. I remember hearing it on the radio. I remember, okay, there's a new single from it. I remember the the tour and the hype of all of that. And I remember seeing him more and more on MTV. I remember the MTV promos and things. And then um, what was weird is once I found he was David Bowie and I started going backwards into the catalog, I because I had heard fame on the radio and I had heard other things on the radio of him that I didn't necessarily know was David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my, my brother had three Bowie records in his collection that he played all the time. Uh, Aladdin Sane, Ziggy Stardust, and Punky Dory. And I remember, I remember him playing Starman and I remember him playing Rebel Rebel and a few things, but not knowing that was Bowie because I was still not necessarily as deeply um, embedded in, in listening to records. But once I got into modern, uh, into modern love and let's dance and those singles off that record and started going back, it was like the light bulb went on. Mm-hmm. And I remember Christmas of um, a Christmas, I think of 84 or whatever. My brother came home from Florida and we were hanging up Christmas lights and I was playing a bunch of different records. I remember I was playing Bowie and he's like, this is David Bowie. And I'm like, yeah, he goes, you're listening to David Bowie? And I said, yeah. He just looked at me and kind of shook his head. And, <laughs> you know, um, my sisters didn't really get David Bowie. They were more into Frampton. Um, but, and, and St. Louis is very much a classic rock city, but Bowie got played a lot on some of the stations here. So I remember hearing some of it, but I didn't recognize it for, recognize it for what it was until past tense. I hope that makes sense. You know, my my journey you're saying yours wasn't linear and mine very much was from when i was listening to fame and golden years on the radio from that point it was like a series of things it was like that i was sort of collecting these moments of bowie that i wasn't even really aware at the time that i was collecting Mm -hmm. um it wasn't too long after that that he appeared on saturday night live for the first time and that blew my flipping mind um, a year after that, the Ashes to Ashes video came out, and that knocked me sideways. Um, there was Under Pressure came out, and it was all these little things, and it led up into like 83 when Let's Dance came out, and I started hearing, you know, like my friends started catching on to it, and I started to hear a lot more of it, and I was like, I, I kind of dig these songs. It was 1984 when the Serious Moonlight concert came out on HBO that all those all those like separate moments all of a sudden got assembled into one presentation here's this concert where he's doing let's dance and um you know fashion and scary monsters and things that i had heard plus fame and golden years and you know some of these other things that i had sort of collected along the way like i don't think when i saw the show that i had even remembered golden years when he started doing it on on that concert, I was like, "Holy smokes!" I had completely forgotten about so. So this that that concert was really the thing that cemented my absolute love of Bowie because it took all those sort of disparate collections of things over the past five or ten years and just put them all together in one package, and I was like sunk from that point on. And you know, what's funny too is uh, there used to be a magazine that was called smash hits in britain but over here they call it star hits and i go to the my comic book store sold it so i could go to the comic book store and pick up the smash hits in my comics 
and then go and my Doctor Who books, and I walk across the street and pick up my record. So I could I could feed all of these different stupid things at once. <laughs> and I quickly noticed that there was a tangential connection between all of them on some way, shape, or form with David Bowie. And I remember thinking, am I losing my mind? And I asked a friend, I was like, oh, no, 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 you're, you're right. I'm like, And that's when it started to hit me how, how just of an impact he was on the world, right? And we went to see um, Absolute Beginners in the theater oh, cool. know, when, when it opened. And that was a pretty big deal when that opened because I, I, it did not go to a lot of mainstream theaters. It's like the first time I went to an art house theater was to see, <laughs> you know, Absolute Beginners. And that's the first time that I'd seen people dress up like David Bowie, like in public. Mm, yeah. And I'm just like, this is like, I mean, I, it was like, wow, this is awesome. You know? Um, and I thought that was really cool, but that's kind of that, that, that little window of time is sort of when I realized that, you know, I'm not alone in all this. And that was, that was kind of cool. Rob, you made a little throwaway comment then about how Bowie kind of, was almost the nexus point that interconnected everything for you. And there is, of course, that theory that I find rather uh, rather cute, that Bowie's death basically shattered the fabric of the universe. <laughs> and that's why everything's kind of gone to shit over the last You know, there are... Years. Rob Sheffield wrote a whole book on... on well, wrote a book called On Bowie, and he talks mm -hmm. about, you know, that's the nexus point when, you know, this happened, and it wasn't necessarily... Um, an intentional thing but it's just kind of uh, people that at least had that escape mechanism and you know I, it was interesting because I, I was talking about um when he died the I was talking about this to a, a friend of mine who used to be an English teacher of mine in high school that turned me on to music and he's like well now you know how he felt when Lennon died um which I yeah, thought was yeah. kind of an interesting comparison to it yeah but um yeah just the amount of of ways that he seeped into things that interest me is really interesting. And I know I'm not alone in this, which is nice. My own introduction to Bowie was very gradual and very, very fragmented. Um, when, un unlike the majority of my fellow millennials, I was not introduced to him through Labyrinth. I did not have my first sexual awakening to Labyrinth. Um, <laughs> but late 90s, I would have been early teens, if that getting there. I was born in 87, so that gives you an idea. Long road trips. My my dad was a child of the 60s, fundamentally. My mom was a child of the 70s. There's a 12-year age gap between them. So they had a bunch of compilation CDs that were predominantly 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And then additionally, it was around 2000, Universal Records put out a, a compilation album called Music of the Millennium. So between my dad's 60s compilation that had Space Odyssey on it, which mm. I fell in love with. My mom's 70s compilation had Golden Years, and Music of the Millennium had Heroes. Nice. And those were the three Bowie songs I really knew. And then it kind of went quiet. I kind of got into heavy metal, forgot about him. And then fast forward to my late teens and a friend lends me the best of Bowie compilation and says, you're going to love this. And I did. And I did. And ever since then, here and there, I've been delving into some of the deeper cuts and some of the albums, figuring out which periods of his career I particularly like. I have found that the answer is all of them. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it's been a very 
long process that probably started when I was eight or nine years old and has carried on till now when I'm 34. Um, and every time I think I know a Bowie album, I will decide to listen to it and go, well, I didn't recall liking that song that much last time I listened to this. <laughs> <laughs> and it just keeps keeps going and keeps deepening every time I break out a Bowie record. So we're recording this episode on January 2nd, and coming up on January 8th is the second annual A Bowie Celebration, which is something that Mike Garson, uh, he's been doing live shows for a few years with uh, band members from Bowie's uh, past bands. And last year he did a live stream event, and they're doing the second one this year. And this features... Uh, some co contributions from bands like Def Leppard, um, Nick and Simon from uh, Duran Duran, Living Color, Walk the Moon, Rob Thomas, and some of Bowie's past band members like Earl Slick, Jerry Leonard, Carmine Rojas, Omar Hakim, Charlie Sexton, uh, who wasn't really a band member but did uh, some guest appearances on the uh, Glass Spider tour. Um, and I flip and love Charlie Sexton. Mm -hmm. um, and then he's got uh, some guest vocalists like uh, Gail Ann Dorsey, who was his bass player for a long time, who's doing uh, some vocals. Uh, Bernard Fowler, who has been in the touring band of a Bowie celebration for ever since Mike Garson started doing this. And he is amazing. And Sting's kid, Joe Sumner, who has also been with Mike Garson through this whole thing. Um, and this year's show, uh, I don't know exactly what form it's going to take. Last year, it was sort of like everybody recorded their bits in isolation, like in their own house against a black backdrop and sent all the files to whoever Mike got to edit it all together. And they put a band together with all these separate people doing their separate things. Uh, and it was really interesting. They used a lot of really cool video techniques and editing and special effects and stuff. And it was really neat. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The absolute highlight of the last, and there was a lot of great parts about last year's show, but the absolute highlight was Gail Ann Dorsey saying a couple of songs, one of which was Strangers When We Meet from Outside, which A, is one of my favorite tunes from that period of Bowie's career, but she sort of turned it into like this kind of like really quiet, smoky jazz kind of thing. And it was stunning, absolutely outstanding. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what she's going to be contributing this year. Um, I'm not sure what form it's going to be taking, if it's going to follow that same pattern that they did last year, or if this is more of a live performance kind of thing, but I'm really interested to see what they're going to be doing. You guys going to be watching it? Uh, I mean, there are still six days for them to edit out Ricky Gervais, so potentially. Yeah, that's that's kind of an unnerving inclusion. I have to agree with you on that one. He's he's one of those people. He's like Jim Carrey. He just sets my teeth on edge, and I can't <laughs> explain why. Right. Yeah, I was wondering, is he like the linking thing between the pieces? or No, that'll be Mike. Mike yeah. Carson will well, do no, all of that. To, I was just trying to figure out why. You know, it's like God, don't let him sing. I couldn't. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was trying. I was trying to figure that out. I was kind of like, why is this guy here? You know. Yeah. Well, you know, Bowie did that song for his 
show that yeah. time and I, I mean i guess they're they were friends or something and that's the only connection i can well think that of. that bowie bit in extras is actually really great yeah that's it is true. actually it is actually really great but right. it still doesn't mean i want to see ricky gervais I, i'm hoping it's just five minutes of, of ricky gervais basically saying please donate to save the children and doing a little <laughs> a little right. bit to yeah. kind of support it i mean the show's in benefit of save the children so mm-hmm. yeah um but overall, I mean, I'm looking forward to Noel Gallagher. I think that will be interesting. Walk the Moon Agreed. should be good. Yep. The two members of Duran Duran. Um, you know, that there are some artists in there I am excited about. I'm not excited about Def Leppard because I can't stand him. But, um, <laughs> I have a story for you later. Um, yeah, but, but, <laughs> but I want to I'm not excited about Rob Thomas. But the, the mm. nice thing about Def Leppard is that they have a long history of being well-known and well-established Bowie lovers. That's very and, true. And, um, yes, Bowie scholars in a way. So I'm, I'm really kind of looking forward to seeing what they do with it and have referenced Bowie or Bowie titles or Bowie characters in a number of their songs. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to them being involved and, and to see what they will do. And if nothing else, I'll do one or two songs and it'll be over in 10 minutes and, you know, move on to something else. <laughs> I mean, I love the fact they're incorporating people that I normally wouldn't associate as being in that camp. Yeah. But I just have to sort of look at it, tell myself, broader lens, broader lens. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. I mean, I wasn't, I don't think I've ever been aware of Rob Thomas being a particular Bowie fan. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to see what he will contribute. That's going to be interesting. I mean, I didn't know Evan Rachel Wood sang. So, uh, you know, when I saw this group, um, the, the the first time that Mike did the touring band, they came to the Buckhead Theater, and I saw it, and uh, it, it was so good. And and she was there, and she sang a couple of songs, and she was just fantastic. Yeah. So, um, I, and actually, I think so. One of the things that they're doing is this sort of coincides with the 35th anniversary of Labyrinth. And there's going to be some special appearance by Brian Henson. I don't know exactly what he's going to be doing, but I'm really looking forward to seeing what part he's going to play. And the the write-up on this thing implies that Rachel is actually performing as part of the Labyrinth set that they're going to do. So that'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Anthony, you are of the age of Labyrinth, but did not come to Bowie through mm-hmm. Labyrinth. What do you think of Labyrinth? So I didn't see Labyrinth until I was in my mid-twenties, and I enjoyed it, but I think not seeing it as a child perhaps dented my appreciation for it, because it seems like so many people in my generation adore it, and they all saw it as kids. Yeah, worship that movie. And I saw it when I was like 26, and I watched it and was like, I mean, this is good, Bowie's enjoyable um the movie's good but i don't get why people seem to live and die by this movie so i i guess you know i enjoy it but it's it's not an obsession well it didn't even come out until i was about that age so that's when i saw it too but i agree with you i'm like you know you go to conventions and i do a lot of panels at conventions and i'm always doing like some bowie panel and the majority of the audience came to Bowie from Labyrinth. Like the majority of the people who come to these kind of things are of that age of that generation. And, you know, there comes a point where I'm like, you know, I love Labyrinth, but you know, 
that's not well, the only thing there is. <laughs> I, I remember that very clearly when you and I did that Bowie panel at, was it still Timegate or had it become Who Lanta by that point? I, I remember very clearly you and I on the I, main stage. And... I don't remember, but I think it was still Timegate at that point. And a lot of people, it was about 2016. I think it was the year mm -hmm. Bowie died. Um, it was. And a lot of people in the audience said exactly that. They came to Bowie through Labyrinth. And I was surprised. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a cultural touchstone. You know, it's like it's like the thing that the general public at this point seems to know about Bowie. And, and I saw him in, I saw as an actor, I saw him in The Prestige before I saw him in Labyrinth. Oh. Nice. And he's superb in that. Yes, he is. Yes, and he that is. is one of my top five movies of all time. Yeah, <laughs> wow. he's also great in Basquiat. As yeah, I was well. going to say the same thing. He is really great in that. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think that's one aspect that doesn't get touched on a lot. I mean, absolutely a musical icon, and um, you know, a, a, he's very progressive. He is so experimental, and I think that. It's always it's almost like an afterthought that he had this movie career as well, and and quite a movie career. I mean, he did so many great things. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence is yes is a, a tour de force. I think. Yeah, I I watch that every every holiday. Oh and, wow, do you really? And I'm I'm glad that uh, well, it kind of started by accident because TCM ran it because they restored it, and it was restored. Mm. TCM was on, and they actually the first time I saw, I think twenty. 18 or 2019 and they actually had you know people coming on to talk about it that weren't necessarily movie people they were more bowie people mm. on with movie people nice and it was really the contrast was really interesting and they they talk about him specifically in that movie and i think it's great because it's he's so it's such a different role for the stuff that he was doing at the time it's such a it, it it's a really 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 dense film it just there's so much to it that um you know, for him to be in that is, mm -hmm. is still pretty great. Actually, talking of that has reminded me of my true first encounter with David Bowie. And when I was a small child, one of the very first records my parents bought me was his narration of Prokofiev's Peter yep. and the Wolf. Peter and the Wolf. Absolutely. And until we started talking about his acting career, I'd forgotten he even did that. And I oh, don't know wow. what, something just clicked. Yeah. But I uh -huh. loved that. Yeah, I remember watching him with Bing Crosby at my grandma's. I remember that. But at that time, I was like, who are these people? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, I was little. So I was just like, you know. Well, you're yeah. talking about, you know, when you talk about Bowie as an actor, one of the things that I encountered during that period of time from 75 hearing fame on the radio up through um, everything clicking into place in 84 with the Sirius Moonlight concert. One of those things, one of those disparate pieces that I encountered was um, he got a lot of press for doing the elephant man. And I remember so clearly I, I grew up knowing uh, and, and reading everything I could about the elephant man. Uh, and when this came out about he's he's doing the lead in this play, no makeup, no prosthetics, no costume. It's just all like body contortions as the the acting. And I thought that can't work. That can that that does not work. I mean, you can't do this character 
because he doesn't look anything like us. And having seen clips of his performance, which uh, in recent years, more have sort of trickled onto YouTube, it is absolutely extraordinary. Like he, you, not any, just any actor can do this kind of role. And he is brilliant in it. And I remember seeing news reports of that at that time and thinking, what a strange thing for someone to do. And what a strange thing to make a play out of. And, you know, all these kind of things. And man, he is just remarkable in that role. So go look for it on YouTube. It's worth finding. There's all these different variations of, of, of Bowie in terms of who he was musically and his visual persona. But I also look at him as who he was during these different periods by who he collaborated with, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is almost fascinating. Like in each of his sort of phases, there's an interesting kind of collaboration or something going on. Do you guys have a favorite collaboration that he did that you really enjoy that you think about, you know, when this time of year rolls around? I have two. Okay. Looking at Bowie as a solo artist, I, and I realize he came to later be a bit disparaging of this era, but I look at the musicians on it, and that's Let's Dance. I mean, bringing in Nile Rogers, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's guitar playing on that record, mm, Chef's Kiss. <laughs> and then the other one I really enjoy, just because I, I find it so unique in his discography, is Tin Machine. Mm-hmm. You that stole was... mine from me. Sorry, Alan. <laughs> oh, that's we okay. That's the okay. same. But just hearing him do something different and being with musicians that I think challenged his his view and the way he made music, I think was really beneficial for him. And that led to what we saw in the 90s, particularly with Outside, which was a little heavier in spots. Um, and I think it just it worked really well for him. It was a good experience. Man, I totally agree. Uh, I am a huge fan of the two Tin Machine albums. I think it's some of uh, some of Bowie's best music. I I think the the energy of it is so engaging, and the rawness is, especially in that first album, um, is just so like it just draws you in, and and you can tell, you know, it's kind of like his breakaway from the pop and polish of the 80s uh and you can tell how that has galvanized him in a way and it does set the tone for his next 10 years mm -hmm. um and so yeah I, I think tin machine is one of my absolute favorite periods of bowie but the whole 90s period is um and uh reese yeah. gabrell's who uh he started tin machine with who continued on for the next decade as bowie's guitarist and sort of like m his main musical collaborator i think the two of them turned out some incredible material and i think that just having reeves around is one of the things that really launched bowie into an entirely new direction for his career so what about you rob um you know, the obvious universal answer to that, which you just mentioned, you know, part of it for me is Tony Visconti, just because I think he helped him ground who he was. That's yeah. my first gut instinct. Yep. But then um, seeing him on that tour with Nine Inch Nails was really interesting. Oh, yes. Because at least the show here, uh, Bowie played first. He went off the stage and went right into a Nine Inch Nails song, and there was no recognizable break between the two sets. 
-hmm. and he basically did the first 30 minutes here of with nine inch nails and i remember thinking you know for somebody who's him who's been around that long with that cachet does not need to share a stage or double billing or anything with anybody and he doesn't need to do a stadium tour with anybody else but i always thought that that was interesting um that he did that Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I saw a couple interviews with him at the time, and I remember him saying that, you know, it made him want to play live again. And it made him want to, you see this in Tin Machine too, but he, I think, really got charged for a lot of the 90s stuff by being just a guy in a band. And I mm -hmm. thought, I think he started looking at some of those early records of the 90s as, I'm just a piece of a guy in a band. It's got my name on it but he's starting to think about the band in ways he didn't think about in the seventies. Right. And obviously technology helps that. And you know, how, how grimy and dirty everything is, but I just think that reinvention and having that platform, because a lot of kids I knew oddly enough that were like goth kids and industrial kids weren't into David Bowie until the nine inch nails tour, which is just weird to me. Yeah. I, and I think most of that tour, um, it was the other way around uh, that nine inch nails started and Bowie, closed and the transition was Bowie coming out and them doing a Nine Inch Nail song and then doing Scary Monsters with the whole group and then the rest of it being Bowie and his band and I think that the the band that he had around that time that was um, outside and the band that he had around that time was was kind of minimal it was basically mm -hmm. Gail, Zach Alford yep. uh, Reeves and Mike Garson and they Reeves, were an amazing band. And if you go and watch uh, from the outside tour, uh, there's a show from the called the Lorelei Festival, and it is spectacular. And just watching Zach Alford drum is, you know, a highlight of it for me. But that band is so tight, and they just man, such a great show. That's one that I wish that they had would release on dvd and blu-ray um i'm sure that they are going to eventually release the 50th birthday concert at madison square garden because it's mm -hmm. got guest appearances from the pixies and robert smith and lou reed and all these people you know and it's the only time that lou reed and david bowie ever ever performed queen bitch together mm -hmm. and um so I, I i'm sure that they will release that at some point the way that they did the glastonbury show and things like that but i really want to see some of these other tours particularly from the 90s mm -hmm. uh get put out on on dvd as well because i want to see more of this of that band and more of that period of his career one of the things that i love about him is that he sort of goes he sort of fluctuates between chasing hits and not giving a damn about hits mm -hmm. you know and and it kind of he kind of cycles through these two phases you know where in the in in the at the beginning all he wanted was to be famous all he wanted was to make it all he wanted was hits to like sort of verify that he is on the right path and space oddity came along and gave him enough trajectory to survive the next uh, however many you know four or five years with with uh, no hits before ziggy really kind of came along and and propelled him into superstardom and then once he gets past you know ziggy and young americans and you know golden years and those kind of things and he sort of gets to that point where he's like okay i've had enough of that i don't i don't give a shit about 
being commercially successful anymore. And you get into the Berlin trilogy where he's really going sideways and, and, you know, you come around to the eighties, he's going through the divorce with Angie. He's now become the sole guardian of his son, Duncan. He's finally kicked his, uh, producer, uh, his manager to the side where, who was totally mismanaging him for so many years. And he's like, I need, I need to start earning money. And that's where you get the scary monsters album and the let's dance album. And he's actively going for success and going for hits. And then you get the reaction against that with tin machine. And then you get into the nineties where he's super experimental. And I just find that constant fluctuation really, really fascinating. What, what is interesting um, having known some people that worked at Virgin at the time when those, when those records were dropping, they were not thinking that those records, they put them out because it was his name. And they're like, okay, it's going to do well. Mm-hmm. They did not expect college radio, for example, which is always younger to embrace those records like they did. And they all outside and um, a few of those other records were sort of accidentally commercial. And then the labels had to sort of scramble to get them out there to do it, you know, in, in the States to get them behind, you know, they're like, what's a drum and bass record? What are we doing here? You know, I mean, it, it, he also changed the record releasing culture of the nineties, almost single-handedly in terms of I'm going to do, you know, a record. I'm not necessarily going to have a single. It's a whole album. If you want to put a single, we'll put a single on it and play what you want, you know, and this idea of, you know, going out and being seen everywhere and doing press for everything. He, didn't necessarily really do it. And then the records exploded and he kind of had to. And I think that's sort of interesting as well. I think what's also really interesting is that in 98, Madonna puts out Ray of Light and is enormously successful and gets lots of accolades for reinventing herself as an electronica act and techno pop and, you know, this kind of stuff, the psychedelic trip, pop kind of thing and bowie did that a year earlier with earthling Mm -hmm. so you know that's that the the injustice of the music industry sometimes and just talking about how he really did some by his standards weird stuff in the 90s i mean (laughs) you know he described hello space boy as sounding like um (laughs) nine inch nails meets the doors (laughs) <laughs> which I love that description. And, and for me, you know, I, I've mentioned a few times on the show, I was a huge metalhead as, as a teenager. And having that slightly heavier side to Bowie, which is one of the reasons I love Tin, One, um, Tin Machine a little more, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's something I really enjoy, hearing him go just a little heavier, a little harder. It, it kind of is the crossover point between his music and a genre I love so much. And also, he also knew, too, that if he went a little heavier and a little harder, not, not completely, he'd capture some of the fringes of that, of that grunge mm-hmm. scene that was going on at the time. And, um, you know, it was really interesting because one of the biggest champions of the later Bowie record, once Nirvana broke, you could not stop Kurt Cobain from name-checking David Bowie all the time, right? And it, it's really interesting how artists that you don't think of 
as being influenced by him are. Pretty much everyone from 1978 on, uh, in some way, shape, or form, was probably influenced by Bowie, even Bette Midler, you know. But I think that in his instance, just the way that he was able to, like, adapt his sound to a sound of a decade and not sound compromising or complicit is really interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, and let me tell you, one of the albums that I really, really did not like when it first came out, since we're talking about this period, the, the, the nineties era was ours, which came out in 99. And, you know, you're going through like after the tin machine stuff, um, black tie, white noise was kind of iffy for me. I liked some of it. I didn't like some of it, but then you get this sort of like rocket ride that launches with the, uh, Buddha of suburbia, which I think is a brilliant record and then outside and then earthling and he's just going this hard-edged really energetic really exciting really challenging stuff and then hours comes along and it's like he hit the brakes and all mm -hmm. of a sudden he's like doing this album that sounds like he's old and kind of tired and sort of like you know retrospective and oh i just hated it it sounded so dull and so boring. I really appreciate it now a lot. And I, I it's not one of my favorites, but I, I really have an appreciation for it that I did not have at the time. At the time, think, it just sounded like, oh, where is this coming from? <laughs> I, I think it's one of those things where if you go through and listen to his discography in order, mm -hmm. it's really jarring. Exactly. Really, exactly. really jarring. But you listen to it kind of one-off, and mm -hmm. it's decent. It's never going to be a favorite for me, but right. you know, and it's, and that's what I had to do. That I had to like try and separate it from its context and listen to it as this standalone project. And I still had a hard time getting into it because it just oh, sounds kind of lifeless. I like Thursday's Child, but oh, I love beyond, that song. Yeah, that's that, they, I could yeah. leave the rest of the album. Honestly, most days, yeah, they really push Thursday's Child to college radio. Hmm. And a lot of college radio stations started playing the pretty things are going to hell. Yeah. A, a, much, and, a much better song for that. kind. Of and thing. I think that really sort of caught the label off guard a little bit. Cause they're like, well, that's the single or, you know, and you know, Bowie was like, Hey, whatever they play, I don't care. Like he, that's the first album that I remember where he started actually like doing interviews on like non-commercial stations. He's, he's on, he's on, you know, if he's in, Des Moines, Iowa, whatever the college state. There's a couple um, stations that he went to just sort of, hey, I'm in town. I'm going to show up at the station. He'd just show up and say, hi, I'm David Bowie. Can I be on the air? You know, um, which, oh, my God, I think I, I think I would have just freaked out. Um, but I, I just love the fact that, you know, he's making those records. I may not necessarily love them, but the fact that he's making them, I think, is really huge. Mm -hmm. um, I, like you, did not warm up to ours a lot. It took me probably five or six years after, you know, I listened to it when it came out. It was around. It's like, okay. And I kind of went back to it about five or six years later. And I'm like, I still don't love it. There's parts of it I love. Yeah. Um, I would even, I remember it's one of the first albums I would put on shuffle to see if rearranging the track order helped me. Yeah, I did that too. And I'm just like, I don't know what's going on here, you know? And I, I really wish that, um, he did more like 
I hate to use the word commentary, but I, I would love to know what he was thinking in the process of making the record, not in terms of it being bad, but just in terms of it's so fascinatingly glaring from the other stuff that he does for me, at least yeah. for me in my, in my journey, journey with him. I just thought this is kind of, what am I missing? You know, it's for me, it's refreshing to hear other people didn't love it. Cause I'm like, I'm, there's a joke here that I'm not getting. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm just like, what am I not getting here? You know, it's like, it's like, I should like this Picasso. Why don't I like it? You know? Um, well, he had, he had done that jarring thing before. I mean, when you, the first people who listened to low would never have expected an album like low, you know, I mean, to mm -hmm. have the majority of it be instrumentals and half of those instrumentals be this sort of like amorphous mm -hmm. soundscape kind of stuff no one would have ever predicted that that would come from Bowie. Lower, and then yeah. you get all the way down to the end of his uh, discography. You know, he had that 10 year break where he had just stopped touring, stopped recording er everything. And then out of nowhere, 2013, the next day comes out. The next day is sort of a retro album. It's like, this is, th this is the modern day version of the David Bowie. I used to be. It's, a, it's kind of a hard rock record. It's very accessible. And then three years later, Blackstar. So, and I going into Blackstar, I am certain that he knew or at least suspected this is going to be my final album. And he could have gone the safe route. He could have done another next day. He could have done something that was going to be, you know, really going to cement his legacy as a hit maker. And instead he puts out this weird jazzy sort of really strange album. And as his parting statement, he does something that no one would have ever predicted or expected. And I think that is the genius of Bowie in a nutshell. Yeah. I think that that, and also the planning out how all the other releases are going to come posthumously mm -hmm. and sort of at a time when people are selling off their catalogs, he's thinking about his catalog and his legacy and how one, he can keep giving to the fans, but two, how he won't cheapen it. And three, how he can still release things that will be relevant in the future when he doesn't know what the future is going to sound like. But of course he does because he's David Bowie. Um, and it's interesting, the stuff that's come out after his death has been fitting perfectly with the musical time periods that they're in, which is kind of creepy and, and weird and interesting. But I think Blackstar, you know, I listen to it and it's like, from yes, you're right. It's a, it's a man who knows he's on his way out. I very easily see that as his therapy or his like release from everything he's going through. Mm -hmm with the emotional pain and stuff and just sort of just going to a studio and it's like, I'm going to express everything I'm going through musically. Oh, agree. And, and I think jazz is a format that works with that. And I think David Bowie jazzy is a really interesting mel uh, melding of uh, ways to express that. And it is the first record next day did this to an extent, but for me, it's the first record that I listened to with Bowie where I felt like the album was a piece, mm -hmm. it, its oh, whole self. Without Not, a doubt. Yeah. Um, and I love that about it. Yeah. Just going back to what you said, Alan, about Bowie doing things that are jarring. Another instance I was thinking of was the Diamond Dogs tour. 
Oh, completely, completely. <laughs> yeah. Halfway you, through, yeah, just absolutely. changing the entire tour and turning it into the Soul Tour. That's right. Um, bonkers. Right. And, and so the audience coming to these shows are expecting to see a Ziggy Stardust kind of show, and they get a, a Soul review. Mm-hmm. And and it even even to the point of recasting some of his older songs in this new sort of soul uh, template. And it's, I mean. I can imagine there were people who wanted their money back. <laughs> I heard, uh, I was reading a piece on this in, I think it was the Telegraph, Britain's Telegraph newspaper, mm-hmm. about yeah. the abuse that his musicians got once it became <laughs> the Soul Tour. Yeah. Apparently from the front row of the audience, there was the N-word being thrown out and all this kind of horrible, horrible stuff that no one should ever have to face on yeah. stage. And, you know, I I love that Bowie is willing to just be like, you know what, screw you. I'm I'm gonna do what I want. I'm David fucking Bowie, man. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a great talk about a great story about when he was recording Young Americans. Springsteen went down to to visit him in the studio, and he's talking about the record I thought I was gonna hear in the studio was not the record that I got, and I just thought I could never be this this daring and this um just ballsy you know yeah um and i love that i mean i i I love the soulful bowie stuff because i think his voice is perfect for it um i think he's he's one of the few people that's got a voice that could do a lot of different things and you saw you even saw hints of it on diamond dogs i mean there's Mm -hmm. a lot of soul in Mm -hmm. something like 1984 oh absolutely oh yeah absolutely so it's not a huge surprise that he kind of veers in that direction um more fully and embraces it but yeah i mean i can understand why people weren't expecting it at the time and and, you know and he grew up listening to a lot of those records that Mm -hmm. that type of music so i think for him it was probably incredibly freeing right just to be able to like i'm just gonna play the music i love you know i'm sure that you know doing rebel rebel and that stuff is all really great and awesome but at the end of the day he gets to like play something he just has a passion for and I think that that really, that whole side of him, why not necessarily super popular with other people, I think it really rejuvenated him at a time when he really needed it sort of creatively. Yeah, and also I think that that was key to him pretty much breaking the American market. Mm-hmm. When you get things like Fame and Golden Years that mm-hmm. are that are in that style, when he's doing appearances on Soul Train of all things. And, and oh, I love like that. that. That and that's really what really launches his career in America. Yeah. So I think that's I think he was like he knew exactly when to make that move. Okay, it's a super obvious question, but if you had to define your favorite Bowie songs, I don't want to put a number on it. So Rob, (sighs) if you want to go on for two hours on this, you can. Alan might cut you off. But um, you know what? What I guess what are the songs that define Bowie the best and and your love for Bowie? Um, you know, I did a playlist for Bowie for Spotify for this anniversary, not this one, but when he, you know, after he passed and I couldn't stop putting songs on it. So I'm not going to number them right. because it's obnoxious. Right. But I have um, the French and German 45s for heroes. Right. Where he sings them in those languages. And to me, hearing heroes in German, which is very guttural and not necessarily pleasant, but still having that sense of like pathos and melancholy in it. And then hearing it in French, which is also very, you know, 
la ha ha, right? It just really, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it, you, you, can, you can take that out and post. But um, I, to me, it really sort of like hit me of like how universal his music was. And it's like, I could hear David Bowie singing Farsi and I would still just love it. So I think, you know, I know Anthony's expecting a long laundry list. That is one of them um, for sure. And I, I, I will always have a passion for, for Bowie the for the Berlin stuff because and this will this will drive Alan nuts. But like after I got into Let's Dance, I went like I gotta go to the record store and buy a Bowie record. You couldn't buy Let's Dance; it was gone. The cassettes were gone. Kids mm-hmm. ask your parents. The um, the records were gone. So I ended up buying Low. So I went right from <laughs> um, Let's Dance into Low, and I still loved it, which is great. Nice. But I think, but I think that you know any of the records from Low and uh heroes and then obviously the remixes for hello space boy which is a song i don't necessarily love on its own but taken as a pop like dance record is kind of interesting alan oh jeez. okay so you say i can go on for two hours so that's good i mean dude it's your show you're the one who has to edit it so if okay well um let's (laughs) see if we can let's see if we can do it by decade okay or or by or by by era, not necessarily decade, because the seventies divides up into too many different chapters. So the sixties, the sixties is a weird time for me. It, it seems like it's sort of like it's him trying to find an identity, and he is all over the place. He does a smattering of all sorts of different things, and I, I don't like his first album at all. But some of the singles that he did prior to that, uh, I think, are really great and absolutely fascinating. And um, You Have a a Habit of Leaving Me is such a cool tune. Um, So I think I might make that one my 60s one. I mean, it's, it's so obvious to go with Space Oddity, which is the song that he sort of finally, like, you, you, you hear David Bowie in the song. But, you know, I, I do love it, but I just find it overplayed. So I'm going to go with uh, You Have a Habit of Leaving Me, which is a great song. Uh, early 70s, I'm going to say, this is also an obvious one, but I don't think there's anything that sums up the Ziggy and, and the later things and that whole, like, era of glam, like Moon Age Daydream. Hmm. Holy smokes, that album. And that, that song is just spectacular. So I'm in a, a a Bowie tribute band called Jerome Newton and the band that fell to earth. And Moon Age Daydream is probably the most fun song for me as a drummer to play. It's got such a power to it and such a drive to it. I, I absolutely love it. So for the latter half of the 70s, I'm going to say probably Heroes as well mainly because of how that song transformed itself in a live setting. It, it started out as a nice song and it started out as a single from an album with the same name. And it started out as, you know, a good song for his set list. And I think Live Aid transformed that song into the big arena anthem that you think of it as being. And that performance is probably my single favorite Bowie performance ever. 80s, 
you know, I, I like Let's Dance and all that stuff. I'm much more partial to Never Let Me Down, which most fans don't like. And I absolutely love that, uh, that album. So I'm going to say from the late 80s, I'm going to say, shoot, I don't even know. I love Day In, Day Out. So we'll just do that one. 90s. I can't even pick a 90s one because it's so much different stuff that happens in that. But I think the best single, the best song that he recorded, the best composition, God, there's actually two. The Buddha of Suburbia is a spectacular mm -hmm. song. Holy Moses. But I'm going to say Strangers When We Meet is the single best David Bowie song, even though there's other ones that I like more. Like The Motel is great. And like, well, everything off of outside is just incredible. But I think that Strangers When We Meet is the best Bowie song from the 90s. And then 2000s, I'm going to go with the title song from Black Star. <laughs> that it, it is the most incredible thing. It blows me away every time I hear it. And I get kind of, I, I get sort of submerged in the world that it presents to me yeah. every single time. Yeah, Ashes to Ashes does that for me too, where I just get submerged to the whole world of it, even though it's yep. a big hit. Yep. Um, it's it's one of the records I, I literally can stop doing anything and, and I'll just listen to it wherever mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Anthony. Okay, so like you, Alan, I'm going to go in roughly chronological order. So first and foremost, it was the first Bowie song I ever heard, Space Oddity. It's super obvious to include. Um, but to your point, Alan, it's the one that really defined who he was as a musician. Mm -hmm. It holds a personal place for me, being that first Bowie track I heard. So I gotta gotta pick that one. Uh his kind of early 70s pre what I think of as pre-glam. So um I guess kind of the the hunky dory and man who sold the world eras, um, Life on Mars. It's just a beautiful, beautiful yeah, song. It really um, is. Yeah. Now, for the glam era, I'm finally going to pick something a little less obvious. And it's it was still a single, but I'm going to go with The Gene Genie. Yes. Because to me, that is everything that defines glam rock in one track. Yep. And I think it's mm -hmm. brilliant. Later 70s, um, I'm going to go... Uh, I think I'm going to go with Fame again. Kind of an obvious one, but it's got that really great groove to it and that guitar yeah. line that gets imitated so often. Um, yep. You you hear it a little in um, Bellowist Sum's Imagination. Yes. More recently, you've heard something similar in Steve with Stephen Wilson and Self. Um, it's just it it's an iconic track that has influenced and inspired so many other artists to structure songs in a very, very similar way. And I think it was groundbreaking for that reason. Mm -hmm. Moving into the 80s, uh, I'm going to pick Cat People, Putting Out Fire. Uh, Which version? The Let's Dance version. Thank you. Yes. No, no one I, ever says that. I don't like the slower no. start to the soundtrack version. But with Let's Dance, you've got Stevie Rain's uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's gorgeous guitar work right at the beginning there, and it just it, it it's one of those tracks that really amps me up. And 
before we all put the uh, put Marilyn Manson on the do not listen to list because of <laughs> his uh I want to say indiscretions to be polite, but that is massively understating it. But yeah. he did a cover of that with um, Shooter Jennings that was yeah. phenomenal. And I feel so sad that I can't bring myself to listen to it anymore. Yeah. Um, late 80s, I'm a little less familiar with. I think it would have to be something off of Tin Machine, but I'm not sure what. So I'm going to kind of take a mulligan there and just say something from Tin Machine. <laughs> something from Tin Machine. That's fair. <laughs> 90s, Hello Space Boy, both versions, the original album version and the Pet Shop Boys remix. Really enjoy both of those. And Little Wonder, which is just... Ooh, I love I mean, it. To, it, it. It's weird to take a drum and bass heavy song and yet also make it an anthemic sing-along. I mm -hmm. don't know any other artist that could do that. Yeah. And then finally from Black Star, it's Lazarus because Oh um, yes. Alan, I before you were in Jerome Newton, the band who fell to earth, <laughs> I stood alongside you on at least two occasions and cried to that song. Yep. So you know, for me that is a song that is very um very closely tied to his death for so many reasons but yeah you know the opening night line look up here i'm in heaven yeah oh my gosh I, yeah. I mean that even thinking about it i can feel like a little uh a little tear forming um it it's so prescient it's so beautiful and you listen to the beat of the drums that's very hypnotic um for most of it and then it's filled in with some amazing drum fills. The saxophone on it is absolutely haunting. It's just mm -hmm. a beautiful, beautiful track. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's my. Mm, that's a good list. Set. I got to say that um, as, as excited as I was to be asked to join Jerome Newton and the band who that fell to earth. Um and and I was you know when they when they and I got the the message and said you know would you be interested and I was like immediately yes because I had been wanting into that band for quite a quite a while. The thing that saddens me about being in that band is that <laughs> I won't ever be able to go see that band with you anymore. I, I will miss I will miss being able to go to that kind of show with you. But if you could pull that off, that would be pretty amazing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Well, That's when great. when um, this current wave of COVID is done and dusted and things are a bit more back to normal, I look forward to being in the audience and seeing you performing those amazing drum fills. Well, I'll tell you what, we had a show scheduled for uh, January 9th, which is the day in between Bowie's birthday and his death day. And we were going to be doing a show for the 75th birthday, and it was going to be us and another band plus some solo performers uh, in this sort of like a four hour, three or four hour long show, nonstop Bowie music. And uh, we had an incredible set put together for this thing. I mean, as I was telling my band members, nothing but bangers. Like mm -hmm. it was just this punch you in the face set from start to finish and i was so excited to play this show 
And we have now had to postpone because of the COVID situation, which has um, really erupted once again here in the Atlanta area. So tentatively rescheduled for April. Are we'll you going to see gonna what, we'll see what happens stats? in April? Wait, do what? can you do it around the 22nd? Not the About 22nd. Eight? Yeah, not the 22nd, but a couple days before then I could go. Oh, uh, what, what was your question, Anthony? I couldn't hear you. Uh, was it going to be the same set? Oh, I'm sh- I, I don't know. We'll have to see uh, if all of the bands can, uh, all the performers can reschedule to that, uh, whatever date it ends up on and, you know, that kind of thing. So we, but I think so. Yes. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to push for it to be because it was a good set. Let me tell you. I would ask if there were any surprises in the set list, but understand you probably don't want to say so at this point. Keep it a surprise. <laughs> um, I, no, no. I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that separately. <laughs> okay. All right. So, any last thoughts about Mr. Bowie on the occasion of his seventy-fifth birthday? I think he's sorely missed by so many people, both as a performer, as an actor, and just as a general presence and inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, his death uh, six years ago was something that none of us expected none of us knew was coming even though he had been ill for a while and i think it's something that that six years on so many of us are still incredibly incredibly sad about yeah and that says a lot about the impact he's had on music and pop culture over the 50 ish mm-hmm. years of his career mm-hmm. yeah it's one of the few times that there's been world grief that defy politics or religion or um, social status or anything, you know, and I, and it hasn't stopped, which I think is also interesting. I don't, I don't think people are still, you know, the, it certainly has um, left the music world a little empty. Um, and it's also in many ways emboldened it because I think it made a lot of people realize that if you want to have a career, you need to do these types of things. But I also think it made a lot of people sort of think about who they are as an artist and a creator, not just necessarily in music, but across the board. And I think that the way we look at creators because of Bowie um, has changed as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Anthony, where can people find you on the internets? So as usual, you can find me on Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, a Doctor Who podcast where we are watching our way through the entirety of the show from 1963 until now. At the time of recording, we have just dropped our most recent episode on the Curse of Peladon. Uh, so you can find us at <laughs> watchers4d.podbean.com or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, Amazon Pandora, iHeartRadio, etc., 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 wherever you like to get your podcasts, basically. <laughs> Rob, uh, you can find me on any of the needcoffee.com formats and uh, also on uh, KDHX, kdhx.org. Um, shows archive is called Juxtaposition. So you can listen to it when you want to sleep or drive the neighbors away um, on the archive stream. And uh, yeah. And you can find my other podcast, which is Earth Station Trek, a Star Trek podcast. We are just about to hit our one-year anniversary, uh, and we've got a special something that's coming for that. 
So you can find that on all the normal podcast uh, sources, um, Spotify and iTunes and all those kind of places. And also look for the Modern Musicology YouTube channel. Uh, this, this show existed for at least a year as a YouTube show before we transformed it into a podcast. And there's tons of stuff on there to look for. So, um, you know, check that out. So we will be back again in a week or so and have another episode. So until then, take care, have a, have a good week, and we will see you next time.